This Late Hour presents A Return to Genesis Interview with Dr. Dan Biddle of Genesis Apologetics. Host, Casey Knowlton. Hey everyone, before we enter into the Shroud of Turin special next month, I wanted to share with you an interview I had with the founder of Genesis Apologetics, Dr. Dan Biddle. We return to the first book of the Bible to discuss the importance of a literal view of the Genesis text, along with support for why we can trust the accounts of creation, the flood, and the dispersion event from the Tower of Babel. Additionally, we get some exciting news about a new film that is coming to theaters next year, The Ark and the Darkness. Listen in as I interview Dr. Dan Biddle with a return to Genesis. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. I've got a special guest today, Dr. Dan Biddle of Genesis Apologetics. Dr. Biddle, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on your program. Well, we're very excited to have you. And, you know, I was looking back at uh, season one, and obviously this is uh, a show about sort of the times we find ourselves living in that, uh, you know, as I look around the world, go, man, things just keep getting more crazy and more intense. And I I realized that I spent probably a half of this last season talking about Genesis. And it surprised me because uh, so often I find as I'm looking at things related to my eschatological position or the end times or the last days, I'm always referencing back to Genesis because that is exactly what Jesus and Peter and so many others do in the scriptures. And so it's, a, it's an honor to have you on to talk more about Genesis and why that's important in this day and age. You know, I, I can't agree with you more about that. Um, I was just giving a talk recently, and I said one of the best things you can do in these interesting times is that if you want to be assured that God has got the, the revelations and the end times in his hands, be first assured about creation and foundations and Genesis, because if you can believe and see from evidence that he did what he said he did in the book of Genesis, only then can we be really confident about what he's going to do in the end of days. Yeah, that's a good word. I definitely agree. And 
you know, for those listening who maybe don't know who you are, uh, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and, and who Dr. Dan Biddle is. Sure. Yeah. Just a little bit of quick history. So I got saved when I was about 11 years old and then uh, family went through a divorce and had a rocky time, which led me into some rebellion until I was about 17. When I was 17, I decided that I wanted to come back uh, and live my life for Christ. And I think I've been locked in pretty tightly uh, ever since. I, I gave up my rebellious ways, if you will, and began pursuing um, a lifetime. I was always interested in apologetics. Uh, but I, I first did the secular route. I went and got my PhD in the behavioral sciences and, and got involved with a, a couple of secular companies that I now reside over as a CEO. I was a testifying expert on statistics and research for about 20 years in state and federal court cases. And I still get involved in those companies to the extent needed, but then I also spun off our ministry, Genesis Apologetics, about eight years ago. And I was able to use a lot of the skills I had honed in the secular research and testimony world and now apply those towards uh, creation apologetics. So you mentioned starting Genesis Apologetics. So obviously this is a ministry that has a, a vast online presence. And one of the reasons I found you was some of these great videos that are on YouTube. So I'm just curious, what led you to create this ministry and to focus so much of your time and efforts on defending the Genesis accounts, such as creation and the flood as literal history? You know, th that is a, as a longer story. I can give you the, the short version of it. Um, I can say that, um, I've, as I mentioned earlier, I, I've been a Christian since I was 11 and was acquainted with the, the power and the movement of the Holy Spirit, but never really knew what it would look like to get a call on your life. Uh, people always say, well, I was called into ministry. I was called to be the pastor of the church. But, but all I can say about that using my short version of the story is that when God puts a call on your life, uh, he will invade your life in ways that are natural and in ways that are supernatural until he makes expressly clear what it is that he wants with you. Um, you know, I had a, a tennis instructor once who commented on the fact that I was always hitting on the on the frame of my racket. And he says he wants me to hit it in the sweet spot. But then he said, you know, um, if, if you bought the whole racket, use the whole racket. And that's very much what happened with my life. The Lord redeemed my life with his blood, with his precious blood, and he gets to use all of me. And when um, I still get involved very much in managing my secular companies and everything, but when it comes to the ministry, he very much appointed me and called me and set me aside uh, separately to get involved in this ministry. And I think one example of that calling was going to the back to school night to my son's sixth grade class when he was in public school and hearing the teacher explain how they had to teach evolution as a mandatory part of curriculum for the world history class and saying, that, oh, don't worry about it. It's only two or three weeks in the front side of our class here at the beginning of every semester. And then I began to understand the extent to which those layers of propaganda and the lies of evolution were being deeply embedded in my son's mind and in the minds of most Christians that he knew who were going to that public school. And the Lord so opened my eyes in that moment, because I have training as a psychologist, and I understood a lot of the layers of, of the information that was going into the head of these kids. I actually got sick to my stomach and had to walk home after really coming to a full understanding of what was happening in the minds of today's youth when they got saturated in three weeks of very detailed apologetic level training on humans evolved from apes. And uh, so that's just one example of how God broke my heart and, and gave me a heart and a mind to want to go over and, and tackle this 
with a, with a burden towards a lot of the kids in public school, but but all students in, in general. But that's uh, that's kind of how I got started. Now, did you grow up with sort of an understanding or history of the fact that Genesis was literal? Because you did mention, uh, I think, being saved at 11, having some rebellion, coming back to the Lord at 17. Was this always your understanding or was there sort of a process as you went on in your Christian walk where you realized sort of the value or the importance of the you know literal uh, view versus some of the other views that are very prevalent in our churches. Yes, you know, I uh, I, I very much was undeclared on origins as I kind of wrestled through, like most Christians do, about trying to reconcile the Bible's account of creation with what I was groomed in with respect to my secular teaching and museums and my college education, and everything. So I was very undeclared on my position on Genesis being either a literal narrative or a figurative or mythical narrative. And I remember even going to seminary uh, when I was in my 20s and the professor saying, if you want to be true to the Hebrew, that the, the clearest exegesis of the text would say that earth is young, the days are of creation are real ordinary days, and the genealogies lead to an earth that's only thousands of years old, not millions or, or billions of years old. But then in the same breath, he said, but if you believe in science, the earth appears to be millions or billions of years old. So you guys go figure that out. And so I spent the rest of the, the next uh, couple of decades being lost, as most Christians did, really not knowing about the historicity of Genesis or if it was true for figurative or, or mythical, uh, until I went to a talk on uh, the, that was called Dinosaurs Walked with Man. Uh, it was a talk done by the, the Dave Bisbee, the current vice president of our ministry. And I went to this talk as a, as a great skeptic, and I went in the, the room thinking, I can't believe this guy's going to try to make a case for the idea that man walked with dinosaurs. I mean, doesn't he know that evolution shows that these creatures went extinct 65 million years ago? And, uh, and so I, at that point, I guess I leaned as an old earth Christian or as a, some, some flavor of theistic evolution. But then about halfway into his talk, after he soaked me in very credible evidence, saying, saying things like, how do you explain soft tissues that are finding, found in dinosaurs? And why is it that, that literally every country has, as far as their histories go back, they have myths and legends and accounts and figurines and drawings and, and etchings of dragon-like creatures that look an awful lot like dinosaurs. And so he really shifted me back. I took 90 days of my life after hearing that talk. I bought thousands of dollars worth of books uh, on dinosaurs and Noah's flood and DVDs. And I soaked in that world for 90 days as, a, as an expert witness, as a behavioral scientist who loves evidence. I just went plunged deep into that world and about halfway through that process came away with the understanding of, oh my gosh, it's all true. Genesis 1 to 11 is written as a real historical narrative that any, anybody should be able to pick up and read. And it's true. And the world's version are, is, is not true. And then I also, like, about that time, came to realize the theological implications of my past beliefs of an old earth Christian or as a theistic evolutionist saying, you know, if God did use evolution, as many Christians believe today, then what you're saying about the character of God is this, is that God the all-powerful creator of the universe used a long, clumsy, random, murderous process of selection of the fittest and natural selection and survival of the fittest to eventually go from ape-like creatures that out-murdered and out-ate the other ones to eventually lead to the homo sapien, the human, the human race. 
And I thought, my gosh, that's saying a lot about the character of God in some quite negative ways. Whereas the creation account, the literal history account, simply says that, look, God gave us a chance. He started out everything perfect, gave us dominion over everything, asked Adam to name everything, including the, the dinosaurs. And then we fell. We brought death, sin, and corruption of blood set onto ourselves. And then God, in his mercy, uh, gave us a redemption plan of the flood and then gave us the redemption of Christ, uh, you know, uh, after that. So uh, that's a little bit about my story about how I, how I converted. That's fantastic. Last season, I actually had a doctored bio, biophysicist, I believe, on uh, Dr. Ben Scripture. He's got his own creation ministry. And we talked about some of these, uh, you know, the dinosaur soft tissues and things. We also responded to uh, a well-known apologist, William Lane Craig, and hit some of his comments he'd made. But this is a, a common uh, you know, sort of argument within the church. It's not just, you know, coming from the atheistic or secular community that, you know, these accounts in Genesis are, they're just too fantastic to be taken literal that, you know, they say these early accounts are clearly meant to be taken figuratively and that the language or style of the first 11 chapters is somehow different than the rest of scripture. How, how do you respond to that sort of skeptical outlook of those first 11 chapters of Genesis? Okay, well, you can pick from about 20 secondary or tertiary arguments, all of which are very credible against those positions, or you can pull out the one trump card. And the one trump card argument is simply this, and quite frankly, there is no scholarly way out of this for the Christian that doesn't believe in the history, historical narrative of Genesis. And it's simply this, if you believe that God is an all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the universe, who could have created in six seconds or six hours or six days or six weeks or six months or six years, why did he choose to create over six days like what he said he did? And when he came up to the Israelites in Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, and wrote with his own hand on clay tablets, the only section of scripture he wrote with his own hands, which is the Ten Commandments, for in six days I created the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. And you just ask one question, what did God want the Israelites to believe when he said that? And the only answer, if you're going to be honest, is six ordinary earth rotation days. And if that's true, and Genesis 5 and 10 are also true, and the genealogies that map just, you know, just thousands of years going all the way back to Adam, then the whole thing is true. And this dovetails into Luke chapter 3, where we have over 70 patriarchs listed by name, all the way from Jesus back to Adam, summing just about 4,000 years of history. So the gospel is predicated or based upon Genesis being a historical narrative. And I really don't think there's any way out of the fourth commandment. So for me, I just, I just break out that big gun, if you will, and ask people to overcome that hurdle. And you really can't. There's no honest way out of that um, that argument, we're really boxed in with the fourth commandment on the six day concept. Mm, that's a really good point. I did, um, one of the things that you know I think about with with the Ten Commandments is, yeah, why would God have written this down Himself if it wasn't what He wanted them to believe? That would that would that puts God in an awkward position where He's either being deceptive or He's being. Um, I don't know how else to say it. I mean, he'd, you know, he'd have to be not telling the truth in some sense by 
if he really did create over billions of years, but he's telling the Israelites, I did it in six, it's yeah. how, how, else do you look, how, else do, how else do you look at it? I know. And that's why I say it really is the, the, the Trump card. You really don't need any other argument, but that one. And then the, the second follow up question was basically, okay, well, if you're going to give me that God wanted at least the Israelites to believe that the next question is, what does he want you to believe? And if people say, if the words come out of their mouth, well, something different because of science or because of what we know now, or because we have radiometric dating, because, 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 then you're putting God's character at risk again. So he wanted them to believe it and he wants us to believe it. And if you look at the scientific case for a young earth, I think the, the balance scales strongly fall on the supporting of the, of the young earth side just using one line of science itself, just pick dinosaur soft tissue. Uh, evolutionists know it's game over. They're playing all kinds of fanciful games with that concept. But the idea and the findings of dinosaur soft tissue over the last 10 years with 120 peer-reviewed science journals has effectively put the spear through the heart of the issue. Um, there's no way out of it. You can explain it with this rescuing device or that rescuing device, but that line alone uh, has clinched the case for a young earth. Another thing you mentioned really quickly as an aside, but you, you'd said, uh, you know, if we look at Genesis 5 and 10 and with the genealogies, and then you mentioned Luke, uh, have you heard this idea? Well, there's, there must be gaps in the genealogies. How do you address that with people who bring up that issue? The, the best way to ad address it, unfortunately, is a complicated one. So I gave you the simple trump card on the last argument. But the best arguments against the gap is simply this. It's the longevity of the and the lifespans of the pre-flood patriarchs compared to the post-flood patriarchs. And what I mean by that is if you take the 23 generations of the patriarchs following the flood and look at their exponentially declining lifespans, after Noah and how they declined from an average lifespan of 912 years before the flood to exponentially shorter lifespans after the flood, you can't have any gaps because it represents a biological decay curve. And the statistical significance shows that there's a phenomenon of that curve sliding down from 900 years old to 700 to 600 to 400, to 300 to 200, all the way down to 175 years or so, and it kind of slopes off then goes down to the lifespans we're used to today, you can't have any gaps in that because the math is saying that there is a phenomenon in the data that can't be invented by man. It's, it's, it's a beyond chance occurrence showing that the increased mutation load we have in our gene pool happened through the bottleneck of the flood. And it's an ironclad case. It really slams the door uh, against any gaps ideas. And of course, if you get into the Hebrew and look at the text itself, you can't get away from the fact that every main patriarch of Genesis 5 says that this guy had a son that he named such and such. And then this guy had a son that he named such and such. The legal term of art is called your issue. You're issuing, I have four kids that are my biological kids. I issued them and I named them. That's what's happening in Genesis 5, and it even says how old these people were when they named their own sons. And if you take that Lincoln chain, this guy was, lived this long, he had a son when he was this old, and then he lived this long afterwards, and he named his son such and such. That goes on all through Genesis 5 and 10, it permeates it. 
So there's really no way to sneak in uh, gaps. And, and let, let's say you, you could fit a gap in there. Well, if the latest scientific evidence wants to argue that Homo sapiens sprang out between 100,000 years ago and 200,000 years ago, yet you've only have 6,000 years worth of genealogies, look how many gaps you're going to have to plug in there to somehow stretch humanity back 200,000 years from 6,000 uh, years of lines of patriarchs. Or if you believe in the Septuagint, you've got about 7,800 years of, of, of chained, uh, chained patriarchs to put in there. So it's just a ridiculous argument. So for some of our older friends who may be listening, so in your opinion, what would be one of the greater arguments for not taking the Genesis account literally? And how would you respond to said argument? Um, I would say that there are some uh, some things with the with the geology and with the flood account that we can't seem to reconcile today. Um, so you, they want to say it's a local flood or maybe it happened over stages and things like that uh, with without employing accelerated nuclear decay that creationists hold on to believing that during the flood there was some phenomenon going on worldwide where we have accelerated nuclear uh, decay. We do know that these layers were laid down in layers, and we do know that they were um, sequences of the flood. Um, but I would say to both creationists and old earthers that, that geology is so messy that we can't really make a super strong case that's ironclad, and they can't make a super strong case that's ironclad with respect to things like the flood boundary, or uh, with respect to things that if they want to you know, argue that their layers are laid down over millions of years, I think the evidence clearly sides with our evidence showing that the layers were laid down rapidly in succession over the flood. But I've seen geology like, for example, in California, where you've got Jurassic layers on top of Cretaceous layers. It's in the, the opposite order than what old earthers would, would expect. And so I would say that anytime uh, scientists from either camp start getting really granular and really specific, I've seen enough geology to know as a lay person that doesn't have a background, a, a scholastic background in, in geology, I would say that some of it is so messy, I get skeptical of anyone who wants to draw a really specific case over, say, certain areas. Well, so in your opinion, then, what would be the top five points of evidence that support uh, the hist historicity of Noah's flood or even uh, the creation account? You know, I think the things that flipped me uh, personally when I plunged into this and went through my journey where I bought a lot of books and DVDs and swam through all the evidence, I think the, the number one that I would come out with is dinosaur soft tissue. And for me, it wasn't just the fact that they're finding collagen and maybe some blood cells and blood vessels. It was the fact that we're now up to 16 different types of bioorganics that are found in dinosaur bones. We're talking about things like collagen and proteins and fecs and histones and blood vessels and blood cells and keratin and skin tissue. I mean, the list is, is horrendous. I mean, we, we would only need maybe one or two, but now we have 16 different types of bioorganics that are in over 120 peer-reviewed secular science journals over the last few decades. And when you contrast that with the fact that collectively the field of paleontology and geology 
as a whole, the vast majority of those fields, if you look at their signs in museums and their books and their journal articles, they believed as of about 20 or 30 years ago that dinosaur bones were just petrified rocks. That was the clear position of evolutionists 20 or 30 years ago. And now they've have, they're having to double back from all that or reverse that massive position saying, well, oh my gosh, yeah, we have to admit that collagen is now being found in dinosaur bones that we now know are organic and uh, natural to that beast at the molecular level. So it's not contamination. They're finding these things in the bones and their real findings to those creatures. So that, that would be the, the biggest one. I think the other one is looking at geology uh, as a field collectively, looking at things, that, for example, the, what's called the SLOS mega sequences. We now know through Tim, Dr. Tim Clary's work at ICR, looking at 1,800 oil core boreholes around the world, that there were six major mega sequences during the flood that we can go back and, and remap even to this day. I think the other obvious thing would be the dinosaur fossil record, just particularly in the United States. I think worldwide, we have great arguments too. But if you just start by looking at the United States, we have 14 states in three countries it's an 1800 mile long swath that's a thousand miles wide over 1 million square miles in the middle of America that goes from Southern Canada all the way down through, you know, Wyoming, Montana, Oklahoma, all the way down to the Northern parts of Mexico. That's a dinosaur graveyard. That whole, that whole region is, and there's millions and millions of dinosaur bones there that are all buried with fish, clams, oysters, and marine life. How in the world could that happen? And oh, by the way, they're buried in mud, sand, and ash. And mud, sand, and ash are exactly the three products we would expect those creatures to be, to be buried in if catastrophic plate tectonics is true. We would expect mud and sand to come, to come in from the, the left and right coast to bearing over the middle of America. And we would expect tons of ashfall that came from areas like the Independent Dyke Storm which is a linear rift uh, volcanic structure that started out in Southern California when a lot of the subduction was happening that period they covered half of the United States in ash. So I think it's quite obvious. Another area would be uh, the flood legends. We have hundreds and hundreds of flood legends accounts from literally almost every major culture in the world has an account that really echoes back uh, to Noah's flood, then I would think if you, you talk with people that look at volcanic hazards or the geological study of volcanics, um, there are a lot of people in that specific field that have to ask the question, why in the world were there a lot of rapidly forming volcanoes in the past that are not rapidly forming now? And I think the flood provides really the only explanation for this. So I think that's probably some of my top four or five evidences for the flood. So I did talk a little bit about the dinosaur tissue issue uh, last season. Now, there's been some attempts to try and sort of wave away, uh, you know, this is some kind of a big deal, which it, obviously it is <laughs> based on, you know, how old we're being told these fossils are supposed to be. But one of the arguments is, well, there's a high amount of iron that has been preserving these uh, tissues and such, and that's how they've been able to survive the millions and millions of years. How do you respond to that? Uh, you know, um, Dr. Kevin Anderson put a, uh, did a book called Echoes of the Jurassic, and he answers that from a really strong scientific basis. 
But just from a practical layperson standpoint, my perspective of why it doesn't work is that, okay, so let's take some ostrich blood and, and soak it in huge amounts of iron and, and then prove that it can preserve blood cells for a couple of years. And that's what the studies have done. Okay, so you did it and it worked for a couple of years. How in the world is that going to work for 65 million years? Uh, you know, common sense would say that these bones should be, in fact, petrified rocks by this time. But when you contrast that with the obvious stories from the field, when Mary Schweitzer, for example, one of the lead uh, secular dinosaur researchers in the world who's investigating soft tissues is, why when she's digging these things up does she report that the, even the earth has a stench of death to it? And why when you crack these T-Rex femurs in half and take them into the labs, are there still veins that you can see? And blood vessels with blood cells lined up still in the veins and the veins are organic. They're not mineralized. They're not rocks. They're not lithified. They're not mineralized. They're still organic dinosaurs. And when you ask the head founder of the Royal Terrell Museum up in Canada, uh, over the largest dinosaur museum in the world says he admits now, yes, most of the dinosaur bones that we're finding are organic dinosaur bones. They're not mineralized rocks. So yeah, if you can get the ostrich blood to be preserved for a couple of years and it works, that, that's great. But you can't extrapolate that out for 65 billion years, especially when you're, you're digging up bones that have the stench of death in the soil still. And, and you got to look at, at the obvious indicators that show that they're not millions of years old. They're just thousands of years old, old buried in the flood. Well, you had also mentioned in your uh, points of evidence there, sort of the sequence events of the flood and this idea of catastrophic plate tectonics. I was just wondering if you could kind of briefly explain for the layperson, what exactly are you referring to and how does that relate to uh, Noah's flood? Sure. If, if you go to YouTube and, and, and Google catastrophic plate tectonics and Pangea, you'll find our uh, YouTube video on the flood. It's the most watched uh, flood in uh, flood movie in the world currently. It's got about 2.7 million views. There's a 23 minute explanation with a lot of graphics on how catastrophic plate tectonics unfolded. But the process is simply this, that Genesis chapter seven, verse 11 says, that, that on the same day, all of the fountains of the great deep broke forth. And the Hebrew word for that is bakah, which means to cleave or to wrench open. So something happened on the, on the ocean floor, because this is the fountains of the great deep on the same day. And today we have a 40,000 mile oceanic rift system that covers the earth about 1.9 times over, where we can still go and see the fountains of the great deep. They're underwater linear rifts that happen when magma came up from underneath the earth, split open earth's crust in this linear wrapping all over the earth. And when that happened, uh, linear steam jets shot up that were superheated, critically heated water came up out of the earth. And then all of a sudden we have a whole lot of new seafloor uh, forming on the ocean floor and it begins to spread. And when it begins to spread on the left side, on the right side, it runs into the land continents and then begins subducting underneath the land masses. And when it does that, it's going to bind against the land masses just like they happen today. That's how the earthquakes in Haiti and Japan happen. Then they're going to bind and grip and then release. 
And when that release happens, it's going to cause a tsunami that's going to go out to sea and onto land, a bi-directional tsunami that were occurring every few minutes during the flood. And that's why we see these dinosaurs buried in layers with mud, silt, and ash that are layered up 50, 100, 150 feet sometimes, where the ocean was bringing up all this, this sediment and covering it onto the land. So that's really the process of catastrophic plate tectonics. And it all starts with Genesis 7:11, and the field of geology substantiates that things like this could happen. They did happen and they're still happening today, only much slower. Thank you for that explanation. It's actually kind of a terrifying thought uh, just thinking about how that would have actually played out at the time. It just, it gives me <laughs> it shivers to think about. You also mentioned yes. you also mentioned the the fact that, as far as we can see, most ancient cultures have some kind of flood myth or some kind of legend or or history related to a flood. Do you have any uh, specific um, uh, favorites among those shared in ancient history of, of the flood myths that you could share? I think one of the most compelling ones is looking at the um, the history of the Chinese people because they have a, a really well-recorded history that goes way, way back. And if you look at the Shang dynasty and the Xi dynasty that's spelled X-I-A, they have very, very credible flood accounts there. But I think some of the more interesting ones are as a book that just came out called Echoes of Ararat, uh, where the author uh, records over 200 flood narrative myths from the Native American peoples. And that is just fascinating. There's about a handful of those, maybe about 12, that are just spot on to the Noah account. But they're talking about a, a guy whose name in Native American sounds like Noah, and he's in a big canoe, and he's letting go of white birds to try to go and find land. I mean, it's uncanny how these stories parallel the Genesis account. So I think there's plenty that are that are out there, but uh, but Nick, and I, I can't remember his last name, but his first name is Nick. Great guy. He's got a book that just came out called Echoes of Ararat. And he's got uh, the flood accounts from the Native Americans really, really well documented in that book. Fantastic. Well, given all this evidence, and these are just some of the top points that you've mentioned, among many others, why do you think so many, even in the church, still discount the global flood as a real historical event? claiming it was just local or even just a myth? You know, I, I think the, uh, the, again, kind of the, the concerning part of that is that uh, in, in 2 Peter 3, he actually prophesied right in the chapter, 2 Peter 3, and said that knowing this first or above everything I've ever told you, he says, know this, that in the last days, there will be scoffers walking in their own lust saying, where is the promise of Jesus' coming? For as since their fathers fell asleep, like since the patriarchs died off, they, they will think that all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. But then he says, these scoffers are going to be willingly ignorant of the fact that by the word of God, the heavens were made. And that's talking about creation out of nothing or the heavens were of old. And the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. And so in a nutshell, he's saying that in the last days, people are going to come and they're going to be willingly ignorant. And they're going, to, they're going to deny two things, creation out of nothing and the flood. 
And that's exactly what's happening today. You're right, in some of our churches, but on a larger scale, that's secular science in general. You cannot go into a geology classroom today or a philosophy classroom today in secular, the, the secular circles where they're not denying those two specific things. So I think it's incredible that, you know, here we have the book of Second Peter chapter 3 prophesying, saying that in the last days, here's what's going to happen. And it's exactly what we see happening right under our noses. Indeed it is. It's one of the reasons we're sitting here talking, actually. Yes. Yes. Well, recently you joined forces with uh, a director named Ralph Streen, and obviously he's the director of Genesis Paradise Lost, which was a great film, which details the creation account, the literal creation account. And you are an executive producer of his newest film, which is coming out, The Ark and the Darkness. What can you tell the audience about this film? Well, uh, Ralph and I are very much uh, partners in this. He's, he's bringing amazing things to the table. He's got the, the number one leading uh, film uh, out there on creation, um, Genesis Paradise Lost. And we're able to work with Ralph together by bringing a lot of the, the flood mechanics and the flood research to the table. So we joined forces about a year ago now to collectively work to produce this movie. Uh, we worked with the team over at Answers in Genesis to film a lot of the experts at the actual Ark Encounter in Kentucky, where they have a full-scale replica of Noah's Ark out there. Then we went out to Liberty University and filmed the balance of our experts. So we have about 11 PhDs that, we've, that are all specialists in Noah's Flood, and we've interviewed all of them about the leading evidences of Noah's Flood, and then Ralph is going to couple that with uh, some really leading photorealistic uh, animations of what happened from a mechanical standpoint during the flood. Uh, Ralph's one of the top animators in the world. He's done a great job with Genesis Paradise Lost. He's gonna use even, even more updated technology to show what's going to be the, the, the best showing ever done of what happened to the world during Noah's flood using, you know, we're talking about Disney level animations, high photorealism, that he's going to put together showing subduction and volcanism and how the animals were hit with tsunamis. It's going to be an amazing film to come watch. And of course, doing this kind of work takes uh, time and money and we're invested in, in both. And it's going to take us about uh, Ralph's working on it now. It's going to be about another year and a half before he comes out with it, but uh, he's going to do a great job and we're excited to partner with him on the film. Wow. That sounds really exciting. So this is going to be in theaters. Is that right? Yeah, we're, we're going to be uh, working with Fathom uh, to put it in 700 to 900 theaters around the world. But I think the best part is that after we're done with the Fathom release, just weeks later, we're going to put it out free on all the social media platforms, including YouTube. Uh, our burden, that one of the reasons that Ralph and I are working together, we stipulated on that point before we even started that this flood movie has to be free. It has to go out worldwide and it's got to be free. So we're going to do that after the, the theater release. It's going to go right out on, on YouTube for everyone to watch. That's fantastic. Well, there is a, a promo video you guys put together. It's a little over five minutes. What I'd like to do now is just play the audio from that, and then we can talk a little about the video. Sounds great. Sevenfold Films, the ministry behind the award-winning film Genesis Paradise Lost, has joined with Genesis Apologetics, one of the leading ministries in flood research to bring you a new film that will forever change the way the world looks at the legendary flood of Noah. The Ark and the Darkness. 
We don't know how much longer we can openly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, so we're inviting you in this late hour of history to join us in creating one of the most powerful evangelistic tools ever produced. We ask that you help us fund this film before time runs out. Back in 2014, in the early days of indie film crowdfunding, I ended a successful campaign by God's grace to create the first documentary in history to show the creation account from the Bible, as well as give incredible evidence and arguments as to how and why the Bible is historically and scientifically true. The movie was released in theaters and went on to receive many major awards, again by God's grace. It has been an incredible evangelistic tool to help to convince the lost of their need for a savior. And many of you watching this, in fact, helped me make that film a reality. I said back then that the number one reason why lost people don't believe the Bible is because they believe it's been scientifically and historically debunked. So I set out to prove that indeed the opposite was true. Now in 2021, I will make a similar claim that some of the greatest evidence to prove the Bible is true is the aftermath of Noah's flood, a belief shared with my dear brothers at the ministry Genesis Apologetics, who I'm joining forces with to produce this epic new film. The Ark and the Darkness will be an extraordinary film covering the creation account, the fall, the pre-flood world, and it will dive deep into the judgment event that was the flood as well as take you to the post-flood world, beginning at Babel, and ultimately go through today and into the future, informing the viewer of yet another coming judgment and how they can escape God's judgment through Jesus Christ alone. We are throwing everything in the kitchen sink into this film as if it's our last opportunity. We will be utilizing all of the accumulated resources from all previous productions as well as the great work from Genesis Apologetics and their years of expert research on the Flood and much more. Our hope and prayer is that this film can single-handedly take an unbeliever from wherever they are and bring them all the way to the cross. While there is still time to share these kinds of powerful presentations to our lost friends and family. To our brothers and sisters in Christ who choose to support this film, I've saved the best news for the end. Genesis Apologetics and I have agreed to release this film to the public absolutely free, immediately following its release from theaters. Both of our ministries had it mutually pressed upon our hearts from the Lord from the very outset that we want this film to have maximum outreach. To put it simply, money is not our goal. There will be no paywall to stop the message of this film from going anywhere and everywhere so the gospel can go forth to all the nations we're asking you to help us fund the parts of this film that we have yet to raise money for your donation will be tax deductible I'm also very thankful to say to my quantum supporters that your patience is now paying off greatly and that we'll be producing two epic productions instead of just one we simply need the extra financial support to help us film the speakers at the Ark Encounter, hire the musical artists, and to pay for the remaining digital assets we need, as well as other miscellaneous expenses. The Ark in the Darkness will be another incredible Christian film production, 
that is worthy of your attention, your time, and your support. Please help us to fund this critical film here in these last days as our way of being God's good servants who are busy about his business right up until our Lord's return. There is a tale over 4,000 years old, preserved in ancient writings and legends, found in every major continent and culture. Many thought it was only a myth, but recent discoveries reveal the truth is more terrifying than fiction. From the director of Genesis Paradise Lost, Sevenfold Films and Genesis Apologetics present The Ark and the Darkness. Coming soon to theaters. Well, that sounds amazing. <laughs> so uh, one of the things I noticed about the the promo video is right from the beginning there's a sense of urgency we hear in the video and we kind of talked about this uh a little while ago but do you think we are nearing the times jesus spoke of in the gospels ones just like the days of noah you know uh personally i do and i know that there are a lot of of, of really well studied christians that have different viewpoints on end times i'm asked a lot about end times but um I was recently traveling for a, a TV show that we, we did in the, in the Midwest, and the, uh, the driver of the van asked me the question, well, if you study a lot about Genesis, tell me what's going on today. And I said, you know, there is a lot in the book of Daniel, there's some in the book of, of uh, Thessalonians, but of course, our Lord himself in Matthew 24, uh, I told her, I think gave the most revealing, the most telling paragraph on end times that we're ever going to see in any of scripture of course the book of revelations is all about end times but jesus himself said in matthew 24 and i'll, and I'll go ahead and read it if you don't mind it's fascinating he says he answers them is he says take heed that no man deceive you for many shall come in my name saying i am the christ and shall deceive many so he's talking about the apostasy, a great falling away. As Second Thessalonians talks about the same thing, that there's got to be an apostasy first, a falling away first. And we do, in fact, see a lot of Christians or professing Christians starting to fall away from, from the face. So he's saying some of that's going to happen in the end time. It's going to be a clue, an indicator. He says they're going to deceive many, and you shall also hear of wars and rumors of wars, and the world is filled with those things right now, both wars and rumors of wars. But then he says, see that you're not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nations shall not rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. And these are the beginning of sorrows. So Jesus, our Lord, says that in the last days, you're going to see, you're going to spot some clues. You're going to have nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famines, pestilences, earthquakes, in diverse places. And we're seeing pestilences. We're seeing famines. We're seeing nations rise against nations and kingdoms rising against kingdoms. Now, I've seen this happen before in my lifetime, but never in the intensity and the frequency that I'm seeing it now. 
Scripture also talks about how this is going to be like birth pains. And I'm, I'm the dad of four kids. I was in the, in the delivery room four times with my wife. And when you look at birth pains, well, what, what are they? They increase in intensity and they shorten in duration. So they get closer and closer together. And the pain of each one as you go towards a time of delivery gets more and more intense. And so that's exactly what I'm experiencing in my life right now. It seems like that we get COVID for a couple of years and that goes away. And then all of a sudden now we got a war on our hands. So for aggression, what about the next thing and the next thing? So uh, I do think that birth pains is a really great example of, of what it's going to be like in the end times. But what I'm doing personally, and this might be a, of some ministry value to, to, your, uh, to your listeners, is I, I want to be appraised of what's going on in the, in the world, but I also know I'm here for a reason, but for a time like this, was I born into this generation? So I have to work on guarding my heart, like Proverbs talks about, guarding your heart over all things. So I'm not going to sit there and soak in the news all day long. I'm not going to soak in Facebook and YouTube and all the conspiracy stuff that's going on. I have a job to do. I have a role to play. So I'm going to run my lane and I'm going to be faithful into the end, doing the things that Christ himself is calling me to do under the direction and the under the calling and, and, and the appointment of the Holy Spirit, because Ephesians says that we're called to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. And I want to listen and find out what those things are that God has prepared in advance for me to do so that I can walk in those ways. So I'm not going to sit in front of the, in front of the TV all day long and be riveted in fear. I'm going to be out conquering, doing what the Lord wants me to do until he comes. Wow. I think we should just cut it off there. <laughs> well, it's encouraging to myself to hear those things. So I'm going to say it until I keep believing it. <laughs> well, it's, it's welcomed. I mean, we definitely, uh, as I say, we as it's the Christian church at large, it's, it's important to keep our eyes on the Lord and to keep encouraged. And I, I do agree with you that because it, it is very easy with the way the world is going to get sucked into it. It's, it's the tension I have to hold in this podcast of, because there, I've I've noticed a certain amount of skepticism, or uh, you know, not wanting to face up to uh, being in denial, essentially, not wanting to face up to the the fact and the the truth of where we are, what season we are on the earth, but also not wanting to obsess about it and to uh, lean into what the Lord has for us at this time. And so it's yes. it's, a, it's a difficult tension, uh, but it's 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 so vital that we we keep our eyes on the Lord through the storms. We have to be like the sons of Issachar and study the signs of the times. We have to be in the know about that. Um, but there are so many mixed messages and so many voices out there in social media and the news that your anxiety cup can get filled without you even knowing it. And why does God say in Proverbs that above all else, we should guard our heart for out of it are the wellspring of life. Mm. And each of us has a role to play. We have to be filled with joy and encouragement and the joy of the Lord is going to be our strength. And we have to walk in that because we all have jobs, uh, jobs to do. So um, yeah, we don't want to be like an ostrich and put our head in the sand. We want to know what's going on, um, but we know how the story ends. And if we can have faith and confidence that God was true about what he said in the beginnings and all that stuff played out, we can also have faith and confidence in the end times and how that's going to play out. So I want to live my life with encouragement and be a joy and an uplifter and an equipper for people in the future. And so I want to 
I want to run that lane with, uh, with enthusiasm in a way that I feel is going to honor the Lord. Mm. Amen. Well, speaking of, if we believe all the things that are stated in the beginning, it does sound like the film, the Ark in the darkness is going to address not just the creation and the flood, but the importance of the tower of Babel. So in your view, what makes the story of Babel such a vital piece of this ancient biblical history? You know, I, I might be a little bit biased because in my in my secular role, I have a lot of experience in the field of equal employment opportunity and understanding from a Christian standpoint, the whole idea of diversity. And I know that some aspects of, of the diversity discussion have been hijacked by extreme people on the right and extreme people on the left. But I do believe that God made people and humans to vary and to be different for a reason. It's just like if you were going to have a garden, you wouldn't want there all to be red roses that were all the same height. You'd want a, a variety of, 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 of roses to reflect the glory of flowers, you know, and God's done the same thing with humanity. And for me, I think Satan hates the idea of God's diversity. And I think he has got, gotten in and leveraged uh, leveraged to, to separate people by the idea of races and racism. And for me, it all comes back to the Tower of Babel. I am, I am baffled by this, the, the, the idea sometimes that people don't really understand that if you know what happened in Genesis 10 and how it played out and how God separated people and humanity by over 70 different language groups and sent them out intentionally all over the world, that was his design. If you really understand what happened and you understand that when the, the, the people on the Mayflower uh, landed on the East coast of America and they saw the native Americans for the first time, those were really those, their own cousins separated by just a couple thousand years from the tower of Babel. So if you really understand that, I think it absolutely eradicates uh, the, the roots of racism. And I think, you know, I have several African-American friends. I've got friends that have all kinds of different backgrounds and I can look them in their eyes and say, you're my brother and you're my cousin. And we're just separated from, from, you know, from generations going back to Noah and his three sons. And I can be sincere about that. And I think the Bible really provides the best answer that when people really get it and they understand the idea of a young earth and the Genesis timeline and the genealogies, and they really get the fact that the Babel dispersion was by God's intent, because Acts chapter 17, that he says that he appointed uh, the different groups to come out and live where they're living today was all by design. It really enhances brotherhood and sisterhood, and it takes the legs out from racism. So I think that's the number one thing we can take away from the Tower of Babel uh, today. Absolutely. Now, like creation and the flood, do you think we have any reason, uh, you know, based on what many skeptics would say not to take the account of Babel literally? You know, I, I don't think that, that we do. I know that there are some alternative um, interpretations of, of Babel, and I've looked into some of those things, but I, I really take a, a, a very classic, plain, literal understanding of what happened at the Tower of Babel. So for me, I don't think there's anything other than um, taking it on, on face value. I think there's a lot that's left unsaid of what really happened at the Tower of Babel, like, you know, God coming down and saying, well, we're going to you know, we're, we're going to separate them again and everything because they're going to think that they're going to be uh, more mighty and more proud be, be, before they're going to build this tower so high that they can't get flooded out again and everything. There's a lot that, that you could maybe read into the text. 
Um, but for me, I want to just take a very straight, natural interpretation of the text and allow other people to maybe get down some of the rabbit trails. But, but for me, I, I think it really provides a, a very clear explanation of what happened. And if you look at the genetics of it, if you look at the mitre, mitochondrial DNA mutations that happen that can be mapped back to a rapid expansion, there's actually a ton of secular uh, genetic evidence that supports the idea of a rapid variability or an explosion of humans around the population of the globe that just happened between four and 5,000 years ago, even using the secular timeline. So for me, I just think this, the straight lace interpretation is good enough. In regards to the mitochondrial evidence, is that how you would respond to those who dismiss Babel as legend or hyperbole going back to that scientific evidence? Yes, that would be one of my go-tos. In fact, the, the easiest way to shortcut a quick study on that is just go to Answers in Genesis YouTube channel. They, Dr. Nathaniel Jensen, who is a Harvard-trained geneticist, just took the president of Answers in Genesis, Ken Ham, and did his Y chromosome markers, his, his patriarchal line, and mapped it all the way back to one of the three sons for Noah. And you can do that with today's modern science. You can overlay a, a creationist interpretation of the data because you have to use a worldview lens when it goes back to how people spread around the, the world and everything. And we're able to get so granular now, you can even find from going to family, uh, I believe it's familytreedna.com, and send those results into Nathaniel Jensen. He can help you understand it, how you map back to one of the, of the three sons for Noah. So I think the genetics and the DNA has really come out uh, on our side. The, the proof is in the pudding there. So out of curiosity, was uh, with Ken Ham's DNA, did he trace back to Ham? No, I don't believe he did. And I'll have to let your viewers uh, discover that because that's uh, that's one part of the video I kind of fast forwarded through. I wanted to get to the interpretation side. Um, so you'll have to go there to YouTube and watch it. But I don't think it was Ham. Um, but yeah, you'll have to go back and, uh, and look at it. Yeah. So the Ark in the Darkness, uh, may, you know, I've been to the, the, the website there for the, for the film. Is it still in need of financial support? You know, we have funded the first stage of the movie and it's going to happen uh, no matter what, but we need lots of, of funds to continue to promote it and maybe enhance some of the, uh, the special effects that we're going to be doing with it. So if you just go to our website, somehow we managed to get just noahsflood.com without wow. the apostrophe. So just go to noahsflood.com. You can find a donation link. We are a 501c3 ministry. Uh, so donations could come in uh, to us and we're going to continue to fund the film. But our main crowd raiser was actually fully funded. It went out on the Indiegogo site and we raised over collectively over a quarter million dollars so far, but we're still taking in uh, generous donations that are, are still coming in, but we're going to be redirecting those funds all towards supporting the movie. And when can we expect it to hit movie theaters? We're targeting uh, July of 2023, um, and and hopefully we're going to be able to, to hit that. I was hoping for an earlier release, but I think we are going to have to push it back so it looks like the summer 2023. And uh, But if you follow noahsflood.com, you guys can receive updates on, on the latest on that. But right now, that's our target date is July 2023. Where can we find more information about uh, your ministry, Genesis Apologetics? So you can just go to our, our main website, genesisapologetics.com. And then there you can see we have 
uh, three different branches of our ministry. We have one that focuses on K to eight students, which is called the Student Zone. We have a program for fifth to 10th graders called debunkevolution.com. You can also just go to that website, debunkevolution.com. Then we have Debunking the Seven Myths program, which you can also shortcut, just go to sevenmyths.com. And that's a program designed for strengthening the faith of your high school student before they go off to college. So they understand that there really was a worldwide flood, that the Genesis Ark is, is, uh, is feasible, and the six days of creation were really six days of creation. But you can go to the hub of our ministry, just genesisapologetics.com, and all of our main uh, resources are, are there. And it's, it's all free at two, I would add. You can download any of our books for free, to watch our videos for free. It's all right there on our website. Which, to our listeners, I highly recommend going and checking out these videos because they are just fantastic and it's certainly encouraged my faith well do you have any closing remarks for our audience today you know i think my my closing remark would simply uh, be this that if the christian faith isn't true uh sign me out you know i i wouldn't want to be part of a faith or a faith community or or, or, uh, a biblically based religion if it wasn't true but I can encourage your listeners that I've vetted this stuff out for decades. I've looked at Noah's flood and the days of creation and intelligent design. And it really is true. And God created exactly how he said he created in Genesis chapters 1 and 11. It's real. Our faith is grounded and rooted in real history. And if you even fast forward to Isaiah chapter 53, there are 12 specific prophecies in that chapter alone about Christ that came true. So the New Testament is also true. So I I would just encourage people to, you can allow your head to join your heart and understand that our Christian faith is grounded and rooted in real history. Well, Dr. Dan Biddle, thank you so much for coming on the program today. I'm so thankful that you've given of your time and answered our our questions very generously. Yes, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to, to next time. Maybe when the, the Noah's Flood movie is going to be coming out, you can have me on again and we'll, uh, we'll get excited about that one together too. Excellent. Well, God bless you. Thank you very much. you enjoyed my conversation today with Dr. Dan Biddle of Genesis Apologetics. Be sure to check the show description for links to his ministry and for more information about the new film, The Ark and the Darkness. Next week begins a three-part special on one of the most studied relics in all of Christendom, the Shroud of Turin. If you are enjoying these podcasts, please give the show a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, please follow the link in the show description, where for $5 a month, you can get monthly long-form bonus episodes. If you have questions or comments, please send me an email at thislatehourpodcast at gmail.com, or visit Twitter at Casey Knowlton, or the Facebook page, This Late Hour. Thank you so much for joining me for this fourth episode of Season 2 of This Late Hour. Stay on the alert, dear Christian. Until next time. God bless. You have been listening to this late hour. Your contribution helps pay our fees, improve our equipment, and build better content. It is my hope that your continued support of our show may bring future interviews and exclusives. Our goal is to always be improving our show so that the church may be strengthened in our mission to bring salt and light to this present darkness. 
May God richly bless you.